And uh, some of us perhaps appreciate the uh, point of view which he takes, but we will all look forward with um, interest to hear how he develops his theme on where Christianity has gone wrong. Metropolitan Anthony, thank you very much. After the talk which we have just heard, I feel very shy giving a talk because the dreams of an old horse on a meadow during the summer. Ваши беседы это же дремы рябой кобылы в майскую ночь. On the other hand, as I'm going to speak from my point of view and not ex cathedra from being
for the first time Christianity and this encounter was a very shocking experience. I was then a boy in a primary school in Austria, in Vienna. On the, in the first week, there was an hour appointed to religious education. And as the teachers knew nothing about what orthodoxy was, they sent me first to the rabbi. The rabbi took a look at me and said, why haven't you got a little cap on your head? And candidly, a little boy of seven, I said, but because I was taught by my mother that we should never have a covered head in a room because there can be an icon or a crucifix. He looked at me and said, you are a Christian. I said, yes, rouse, <laughs> out of here. I was caught in the corridor by one of the teachers said, oh, you are a Christian. Then come to the Roman Catholic teacher. I was admitted to this room and the priest said to me, oh, uh, who are you? I explained. Are you Roman Catholic? I said, no, I'm Orthodox. A heretic in my form, rouse. And I was out. And this was the end of all religious education I had. But what I learned from that first encounter with religion is that it was a friendly kind of what? Movement, organization. That was what I had as a I had an experience of Orthodoxy. I was taken on a Good Friday when I was two years older, I think, to uh, the church in Paris. I came in, I had never been in a church. I breathed normally, but there was incense in the air, and I fainted on the spot. I was way to avoid and I applied the principle when next year I was brought on Good Friday, this time I walked in knowingly, took a deep breath, painted on the spot and I had finished with the religion altogether. So you will not be surprised that my first reaction to religion in general, when it was uh, Old Testamental or New Testamental was negative. A little later I was uh, sent for a short while uh, to experience more of it. The Roman Catholics were offering places in good schools to emigrate children and I was taken to one to, be, to an interview. Everything was arranged wonderfully for me to go to one of the best Roman schools in France. As we were reaching the door, the priest who had interviewed us said, One moment, madam, of course the child will become 
Roman Catholic. And I remember I was then eight or so. I turned around to my mother and said, let's go, I'm not on stage. That was another experience of what religion was. I'm not accusing Roman Catholicism more than anything else. But later, I was for a year in a Roman school, and the children were told never to speak of God or religion with me, because I was really a heretic and I could poison their minds and hearts. That was a religion as I knew it at the age of 10 or 10. You would not be surprised, therefore, if I had gone. Because if Christianity had behaved to the pagan world that way, there would have been no converts and Christianity would have died quite legitimately, deservedly. Another thing which struck me then also was a total lack of love. As I not speak of Christian love, I know nothing about what that means, but just of normal love of children or of uh, boys between themselves. There was no concern of any kind uh, for my feelings. I was a little stranger. From a church point of view, I was a little heretic. I was an outsider, and I should remain outside. And the ex what I had learned very soon not only about uh, churches, but also about the world in which uh, we live in, was that the world is the most dangerous place, a jungle populated with wild beasts whose purpose is only to tear you to pieces, to destroy you. And that the only way in which one could survive was to become as hard as nails totally insensitive and to be able to be like a rock surrounded by waves. This lasted until later, until I was 14 years of age. By that time, I had had a few experiences of religion. My first experience that puzzled me, but affected me not, was a meeting with a priest who appeared to us boys as the ancient of days. He was about 30 years of age, but he had a long beard, long hair, and to us he was ageless. There was one thing that struck not only me, but everyone else also in him, that he could each of us boys in all circumstances of life. When we were good, this love for us was exhausting. When we were bad, and we could be very, very good, this uh, love for us was seeing things, but it never diminished. This man was powerful. Very simple, 
another stage in my experience of what the church and religion was. It did not bring me nearer to religion because I did not connect Father George with religion. It was him, a miracle, unknown of earlier. Later I was a boy in a youth organization where religion was present. That is, we had prayers on a meetings and in camps we had a chapel which I did not attend because we were not forced to it and so I stayed in bed when there was a liturgy which shows to you the level of my spiritual development but what um, In this organization, at a certain moment, Lent met us. I was then a boy of 14, unbeliever, and I was upon, um, accosted by uh, one of our youth leaders who said to me, we have invited a priest to talk to you boys, come on. I said, certainly not. I believe in no priests. I believe in no God, the weather is splendid, we are playing volleyball, which was my passion, and I'm staying here. The man was intelligent. He not try, did not try to convert me. He said to me, do you realize what he will spread about us in the whole of Paris if all of you react as you do? I'm not asking you to listen. Come and make bulk, sit in a corner, and be present, physically. That, I thought, was an act of loyalty which I can offer my organization, and I went to a talk that was given by one of the greatest theologians we had, Father Sergei Bulgakov. But he was used to speaking to students, to direct the spiritual life of grown-ups, not to little vandals, savages, like me and some of my contemporaries. And what he said incensed me to such a degree that I knew I had finished with God and religion altogether. He gave us a picture of Christ in which he spoke of meekness, of love, of all the qualities which were irrelevant to the liberation of Russia 
sword in hand for which we are being prepared. And I knew that I had finished with religion, but I wanted to check. I thought it's not enough to believe or disbelieve one particular man. I went, I did not go to play volleyball. I was so indignant, so incensed, that I left for home. And all my way home, it was a long way because we lived in a suburb, I repeated to myself, I'll check that. And if what he said is true, if Christ is just nothing, then this crawling worm, I will throw into the dustbin my baptismal cross and I have finished with it. I came home, asked my mother whether she had the book of the gospel. She had one, which I still treasure, and settled down to read. But I had remembered one important feature in the talk of Father Sergei, that there are four Gospels. And if there are four, one of them must be shorter. And therefore there was no point in reading a long Gospel if one could read a short one. And at that point, God caught me. Because I took the Gospel according to St. Mark, which was written for the young savages, young people of Rome, mainly. And I was one of the savages. But then something happened. I settled down to read, and between the beginning of the first and the third chapter, I suddenly became aware I'm seeing aware, I don't see that I had the illusion or the feeling. I became aware that Christ was standing on the other side of the desk. I saw nothing, I heard nothing, I smelled nothing. It was no kind of sensorial vision. It was a certainty of a presence. And then I sat back and thought, if that is it, if Christ is here, present, alive, all that is being said about him in this book must be true. And I will investigate more. So I began to turn pages. And the first page I came upon was in St. Matthews, the passage in which says that God so loves us that he shines his sun both on the good and the evil. And I sat back and thought, the whole world for me was the evil ones, the jungle, the people whom, uh, against whom I had to fight in order to survive. And my desire to escape this group of people was such that several times between the age of 10 and 14 I tried to commit suicide by throwing myself under cars in the street for which I had been violently beaten by the, the drivers. Um, if God is like this, I want to be with him and therefore I will love all those who do evil to me. That was the first experience. The next one was a study of the prodigal son, on which I have no time to expound. 
And then I asked myself, but then there are other believers and these people go to church. Is there anything in common with the, between the gospel which I am reading and the person of Christ whom I have discovered alive, saving, transforming life for me? And this church. And I went to a small church in the suburb next to our suburb, Anier, where uh, Father Mephodi Kuhlman, who became later bishop, was celebrating. It was a small church. It was a minute congregation. It was a first revelation of what the church had become in immigration. What uh, my parents have known in Russia was cathedrals, was vast gatherings of people, glorious celebrations, wealthy uh, priests and bishops. Here I found poverty reduced almost to rock bottom. People who were poor and could not avoid having a priest that was poor. And also, something wonderful, which I discovered later to a much greater extent um, when I was 17, it was the fact that God had chosen to be as poor as we were. Wherever we went, God was with us. He was not in the places where people were wealthy. It was in the, in the places where people were so poor that they needed a God that was as poor as they were. Later on, I discovered the measure of this poverty when I joined, at the age of 17, a newly created parish, the only one in France that had remained faithful to the Russian Patriarchate, which kept its 70th anniversary this year. We had a bishop, and we had four priests. There was no food and no money. Our clergy ate what parishioners left in a cardboard box by the door of the church after they had finished their meals. There was nothing else. And I remember coming one day to um, the uh, church late at night for some reason and finding our bishop lying on the stone floor. I said, Ulrika, what are you doing there? He said, well, I, I'm preparing to sleep, implying that I had prevented him from it. And he said, yes, but haven't you got a room? Oh, yes, I have got a room. But you see, I have got a beggar on my bed and another beggar on my mattress. Another one is wrapped in my um, uh, coverlets. And another one is rolled in my um, something I had. And the room is too small for me to find space in it. So I had to sleep here in the corridor. That was the spirit. And I discovered again the wonder of a church that was poor, of people whose vocation was to be as poor 
is God. And that we had a God that was as poor as we were. This is something that has never left me. The glory, the beauty of this poverty. We could not fall lower than God had fallen. However low we fell, we found God ready to receive us in his outstretched arms. And then, later, I began to think of what the church had become. The church, as I saw it around me, Roman Catholics, Protestants, not Russians, uh, because we were all in the same blissful condition of true poverty, material poverty. I discovered a church that could preach to the poor, and a church that could love, in which each individual could love his neighbor at a cost, at a cost of his food, of his time, of his care. I remember later an experience of it, when poverty struck me as the door open to God. It was during the German occupation. I was temporarily out of the army and a member of the French resistance movement. It was a year when I could not have a job not to be discovered. I went to see a friend of mine. I was in my 20s then, 26, 7. When I came into his room, the first thing I saw was not my friend, was on the table a cucumber as big or small as this. Big or small will depend on your appetite. And I was riveted to it. He looked at me and said, when have you eaten for the last time? I said, two days ago. Let us share it. And I was about to rush at the cucumber. And he said, let us pray first. I looked at the cucumber. <laughs> and he began to pray. And as he prayed, I saw my eyes, my heart, my mind, wandering along the cucumber, nearer and nearer to its end, moving slowly towards it. I would have stopped long before it reached the end of the cucumber, but he added more prayers of gratitude for the food which we would receive. Well, I wanted just to say a word of gratitude for the food I had eaten. In the end, he said, Amen. So did I. He broke the cucumber in two, and each of us we ate half of the cucumber, a few inches. He was poor. He had nothing but this cucumber to eat. And I remember then, later, later, not then, a phrase of Father 
Alexander Schmemann in one of his books, in which he says, everything is love divine. Even the food which we eat is divine love become edible. I saw that. It was almost, I'm not blaspheming, but it was almost as receiving communion because this cucumber was divine love offered me. This is something which I mentioned in positive terms because all around there was a negative side. There was the wealth of the church. There was the fact that um, people could be rich and not share. The fact that we were called to love one another at a cost and we did not love one another at a cost. How different it was from the early church. In the early church we had what I have described now infinitely more tragic. Loving meant offering one's life for one's neighbor, offering it, not having it stolen from you, torn away from you, but given. I remember a story from the lives of saints, how in Rome uh, the Christian had been gathered in the Colosseum for martyrdom, and a group of pagans saw a mother running towards the Colosseum and holding her little boy of six by the hand. And he said, where are you going? Don't you realize that they are killing the Christians? They will kill you and the boy. Hide him. And she said, hiding him? How could I deprive him of the grace of giving his life for Christ who gave his life for us? Who would say that now? Love has become a sentiment. Love has become a joy, has become a sharing, but not this kind of sharing, not this gift of self and of others. And when Tertullian wrote to the emperor in defense of the Christians and said, pagans around us, your own people, say, how they love one another. They did not meant sentimentality. They meant a solidarity which implied sharing everything, but also giving everything. And the cost of one's life is necessary. Dying for God, dying to proclaim by death the victory of life in Christ. How far we are. And then something happened. The Christian world grew and an emperor of Byzantium became Christian, Constantine. And the church found a place in the state. Instead of being persecuted, wolves to be destroyed, they became acceptable citizens. More than this, co-religionists of the emperor and then the church, which had been a place of martyrdom and of heroic love, became a place to which people flocked in order to be favorably seen by the emperor 
and his surrounding. And the church was filled with people who would never have come near it in times of danger. It was a time when one no longer could make a public confession of one's sins. One had to go to a priest to whisper because if you made a public confession, you knew what social um, consequences were awaiting you. And yet, a public confession could be a miracle. I know that I'm mixing together the negative and the positive, but I remember a conference of the youth in uh, students' Christian movement in France. I was too young to attend it, but I heard of it. Father Alexander Yelchaninov was the celebrant, an officer who had gone through the First World War and through the Civil War came for confession and said to him, I can state all my sins, but I feel nothing. I feel no regret, no compunction, no repentance. I can make the statement, and that's all I can do. And Father Alexander said to him, I'm not going to hear your confession or to give you absolution on such terms. When everyone will have gathered into the church, you will come out, turn to the congregation, to your friends, to your contemporaries, to older people and younger people, and you will make your confession to them and see what happens. And the man had courage enough. He came out and explained to the gathered people why he was standing in front of the iconostasis and addressing them. And he began to make his confession, to tell people, his contemporaries, people who were his friends, people who were unknown to him, all there was of evil in his life. And he expected that all the congregation would withdraw, that they will repulse him Instead of which, he saw the whole congregation moving towards him with, not physically, but with arms outstretched to embrace him in compassion, crying over him. And he burst into tears and he could make his confession with a broken heart. That is something which has become impossible nowadays. If any one of us came out and made a confession of that kind in front of his congregation, what would be the reaction? Not sympathy, not compassion. People would say, oh, so that is what he is. And all that is left to us is to turn to God in horror of what we are, in horror, and say, Lord, I cannot share this horror with others. I deserve to be cursed by them, rejected by them. Perhaps can I speak to the one or the other, but I cannot be received. I cannot be integrated into the church. I could be rejected. Is that the church in which we are called to love one another as Christ has loved us to love one another at the cost of our honor, of our life. 
it is not. This is the church which we are. Alien to one another, or superficially connected, when there is mutual affection, mutual friendship, mutual common interests, oh yes, and even that ends at the point where we are afraid of losing all we possess in terms of relatedness to people in, if they knew what we really are. How terrible it is. And then there is also something else. We have replaced our communion with God with a theology of God. In the early church, everyone who became a Christian became a Christian in the way in which St. Paul had become. Through someone, yes, or through a direct contact with God, everyone had met God. It was an encounter, and this encounter was decisive. As decisive as when a man and a woman meet one another and fall in love, not sentimentally, but give their lives and hearts to one another. You are, I'm yours, and I receive you totally into me, ready to live and to die for the sake of this communion. The early church knew that. They loved one another at the cost of everything. Not now. And so we have this problem. Instead of an encounter with God, either directly or through people who have, or perhaps not met him, to perfection, but touch the hem of his garment, know that he exists, know who he is, adore him from afar off, but know that there he is, the most precious being that can be. We turn to definitions, we turn to statements, and we are separated from one another by the variety of statements which we make. I think it's very important. I do not mean to say that what the church knows and expresses in words um, about God and things divine is irrelevant. What I mean to say is that if all the knowledge of God we have are these statements and not an experience, a closeness to God, then we are not yet there. We must remember that, I believe, and ask ourselves questions, as I am asking myself this question all the time. N knowing God. Know God as St. Paul met him, as the early Christians met him through a vision given through the transparency of a human soul and the beauty of a human life and of a human death and the ability to identify and be ready to live and to die if necessary.
And one of the elements which plays a role, a decisive role in this, is something tragic that has happened with the conversion of Constantine and the integration of state and church into one unit. The church has inspired the state, but the church has become part of the state. And the state has obtained power over the church. Oh, not outwardly, but inwardly somehow. If we think of the story of the ecumenical councils, they were called by decision of the emperor in order to resolve problems disagreements that took place within the church. And the emperor wanted the church to be united because he wanted a united nation. Isn't that a tragic thing? Isn't that terrible to think? It does not mean that the decision of the ecumenical councils or the church are wrong or untrue. What it means that they have said things true but not resolved the problem. I remember Father George Florovsky, who is one of the greatest men I have ever met in my life. Father George Florovsky said to me, in what they, they said, the Ecumenical Councils were right, but what they have not done they have never given an answer to the heretics. They have denied the heresy, but not answered the heretics. And this is where we are now. We are a divided Christendom in which every one of what we call the churches proclaims what we believe to be the truth. I believe that orthodoxy is proclaiming the truth in a way in which no other church does. But have we ever attempted to convey the truth in the terms of the heretic or the doubter? And yet saints attempted it. Sinners do. I'm afraid there will be longer than uh, I expected. Would you forgive me if I am a little long still? I remember Staris Silwan. He was met on Mount Athos by a Russian bishop who had been and still was a missionary in China. This bishop said to him, the Chinese are totally hopeless. Whatever you tell them, they don't get converted. And Siwan said to him, and how do you deal with them? I go into one of the temples, wait for a moment when they are silent, and begin to shout, what are you doing here, praying to these dead objects, these statues of wood and stone? They can't hear you. Embrace the faith in the true God. And what happens next, as Siwan, they throw me out and they beat me up. And Silvan said, not surprising. <laughs> and what should I do, said the bishop? He said, you stand there 
and you listen to the way they pray. And you try to become aware of their sincerity, the depth of their devotion, the truth that is in them. And when a moment comes, when the service is over, you come to the priest and say, I have been edified by what I have heard and seen. How wonderfully your people pray. Could you tell me more about your faith? Let us sit on the steps of your <coughs> temple and tell me. And when they sit, you listen to what they say, and every time they come to a point which gives you a chance, you say, how beautiful what you say is. If you only added to it this little feature, it will blossom out into perfect beauty. And you give them a short quotation from the gospel or example of the teaching of the church. This is what Siloan said. This is not what I say. And that is something which we are not doing. We are not doing that with regard to one another. I'm not speaking of pagans, but I'm speaking of Christians speaking to each other. We attack one another. We try to prove how wrong the other is. I do believe that in the teaching of Rome, of the Presbyterians and others, there is a, de a degree of error. But it is not by... I do believe that in the teaching of Rome, of the Presbyterians and others, there is a degree of untruth. But let us go to the truth there is and start there and see what we have in common. And we can go beyond that. I remember meeting, um, I apologize to someone who, to whom I've already told the story. I remember meeting on the steps of the Hotel Ukraina, um, a young officer. He came up to me, took me by my cassock and said, dressed as you are, you can be nothing but a believer. I said, yes, I am. And what are you? I am an atheist, he said. All the worse for you, I replied. He looked at me and said, and why should I believe? What have I got in common with God? I said, do you believe in anything? Yes, he said, I believe in men. How wonderful, I said. You have that in common with God. Only God believes in men infinitely more than you do. Can you imagine? God so believed in men that he created men. He became man himself. He died for men. He rose again to take the whole of mankind into the depths of God. Can you do any such thing? He looked at me and said, I never thought of that. I must reflect on that. So, let us think in those terms. The teaching of the church, if we are orthodox, we can believe unreservedly. But we must ask ourselves, in what experience of God is it rooted? If it is not rooted in anything 
But the catechism which was read to us, or uh, the, the prayers which we have learned by heart, that is not enough. We must find a way of meeting God, of an encounter with God. I remember a little boy of seven, eight, the son of a very churchy parishioner of ours, who read every evening the whole of evening prayers with him in Slavonic, which he didn't understand. And one day, when he had had enough of it, he turned to her and said, Oh, mommy, well, now that we have finished praying, could we pray a little to God? What he meant? He spoke to God as a living being to another living being. But to do that, we must readjust ourselves to an enormous extent. Because how many of us, before we pray in the evening, in the morning, or before a service begins, do we stand and try to be deeply silent and say to God, Lord, how wonderful. I'm not capable of perceiving your presence, but I know that you are here and you allow me to be present to you. Let me stand in your presence. If you choose to make your presence known to me, I will be infinitely grateful to you. But if you choose to remain away from me, it will be only justified because I'm always away from you by the way I live, by my absence of concern for you and for prayer. And stand there. And you will feel, if you stand quietly for a while, that's where I should have stopped. Uh, if uh, I have been quiet enough, I will find peace and quiet. And this reminds me of the story of an old peasant in, of France uh, in the life of the French curé d'Ars, who spent hours and hours in church and his parish priest, the curé d'Ars, said to him once, what are you doing there? I see you sitting there hour after hour. You do not move your lips in prayer. Your fingers are not running along your rosary. What are you doing? And the old man said, I look at him, he looks at him, me, and we are so happy together. This is something which we have lost. We have replaced this meeting with God by taking part in services. And these services were built out of the experience of people who had this meeting with God. But we are not um, trying to reach through these services the experience which is their, their root, their substance. We are content with sharing with saints the words of their prayers. At times they reach us, at times not. The singing of the church may convey to us or else may take us away from it. We must learn 
to be silent in God's presence until we can speak to Him, whether in our own words or whether in words of the saints of the totality of the church embodying the experience of the saints. And then a last thing. In our world outlook, we are very often so far away from meeting the world in which we live. It is two worlds, the world of the church and the world of God, of, um, uh, of the outside. We must learn that we are, that Christ came to save the whole world, that the world that is alien to us, the atheist, the unbeliever, the pagan, the person of another confession, are the people for whom Christ was crucified, that he died for them and not only for us. And so often we should say for us also because we are so near what whom we consider as alien to Christ are. And we must, we must learn to turn to them and bring to the whole world our experience of God. Not churchianity, not the rules, not the canons, not even the forms of prayer, but the substance of communion with God. And then we will be what the church is called to be. And that we have lost to a tremendous extent, and we must recover it. I will end my talk at this point. I apologize for having gone beyond the permissible and for not having said all the things which I would, should have said. If I can,
very difficult to know practically how to work. What you have said this morning in terms of finding the beauty in whatever someone else believes and trying to add one's own experience, one's own dimension of that is crucial. And I am sure can work. My question is, can, can we take this message, whether by videotape or audio tape, would you empower me to hold a pan-Orthodox meeting in New York, or attempt to, to play this? Because we have a movement starting amongst laity mostly for people to come together, not to focus on the doctrinal differences and try to hash them out, not to try to reach theological agreement, but to try to love. And we don't know where to begin. We don't know what to do. This could do it. May I take something? Can we get you there? Your question is very vast, but what I believe we should do is to ask ourselves where do I stand in regard to communing with God? Where do I stand with the desire to meet God face to face, or at least to become to be in search of this meeting. And also, to have the courage to say that one may no less, one may not be able to express one's faith adequately, but know something infinitely precious and share it. I would like to give you an example which taken out of, I think, of Russian literature. It's a study of Russian missionary who went trying to convert people in the north of Siberia. He came to a little settlement where three men were living together miles away from anyone else. And he asked them whether they were Christian. They said, oh, yes, indeed, we are baptized. And he asked them questions, and they couldn't answer any of them. And they asked, he asked them how they pray. Well, whether they knew the Lord's Prayer. No, we don't. Oh, then you must at least learn the Lord's Prayer. So he spent three days trying to rub the Lord's Prayer into their minds. After three days, they could say the Lord's Prayer. And he left 
on the little boat that was taking him from one place of the shore to another. And after a few hours, he saw an extraordinary sight. He saw these three men running on the waves, on the sea. They reached the boat and said, what is the matter? What's happening? And the answer was, Father, we can't remember the second half of the Lord's Prayer. So we have rushed to ask you to remind us of it. And he said, well, do pray as we used to pray. And the way we used to pray was this. Three of you, three of us, Lord be merciful to us. These men who could not learn by heart the Lord's Prayer had come to a depth of communion with God through this simple phrase. And we must learn to reach simplicity in us. And when we try to convey orthodoxy, to convey this mystery and miracle of encounter and communion. And then when people say, and how does it unfold itself? Because I have an intellect, I have a form of life. Then we can say, yes, this is what you do. This is what you, um, you learn. And what happens if I search for God and he doesn't answer? And then there is another story, which uh, I'm afraid is not a Christian one, but a Hindu one, of a little girl saying to her mother, um, it's strange, there are moments when we feel that God is there. I want to catch him, and he disappears. I see that, I push my head out and say, ooh, ooh, again, but so that you can hear the sound, but also hear, see my head, and then we meet again. And so that is what we can do in prayer and in all our search for, for God. I'm apologizing for the untheological simplicity of what I've got to say. The question is, basic question is, how again can we live out uh, this vision of a church which is directed outwards? I don't think we can um, recapture the experience uh, which I have tried to convey by agreeing to do it. Each of us must do it. The moment one person turns inward, meets God, then something happens to this person and people around begin to ask themselves questions. And then we can begin to give tentative or provisional answers. I always remember a passage in a broadcast which C.S. Lewis made in 1943, which was published later, in which he says that the difference between the unbeliever and the believer could be described as a difference there is between a statue and a living person.
A statue may be infinitely more beautiful, but it is stone and dead. A living person may not be beautiful or attractive, but it is alive. And when people meet a believer from what this person has become, they should say, what is the matter? A statue has come to life. What is the matter? This is life reaching me. And not biological life, but a shining. At the extreme, you could reread in the life of Saint Seraphim the vision of Matavilv, when Matavilv was asking him <coughs> what happens uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone. And Saint Seraphim appeared to him shining with light. And Matavilv said, close his eyes, and Seraphim said, why are you closing your eyes? Because you are, your light is blinding. You couldn't see it if you were not as shining as I am at this moment. You know, that is what we must learn, to be so anchored in God, so rooted in God, so, I was about to say continuously, it's impossible, but uh, in, in God as much as we can, like a tree which has got its roots deep in the earth, the trunk is not in the earth, the branches and leaves are not, but they feed from, from that. And anyone meeting a person like this would say, this is someone who has met God. If I may once more be offensively personal, I remember having come 70 years ago to the church which became my parish, whom, which I mentioned. I arrived too late. The service was over. The church was then in the, in the basement. The iconostas was of plywood, the icons of paper, and I would say, the few priests of gold. And I saw a man heavily climbing the wooden stairs. And I had never in my life, looking at him, perceived such total inner collectedness, such peace and wholeness. I looked at him, I came up to him and said, I don't know who you are, but please become my spiritual father, which he did. And a certain number of years later, I got a note from him, I know now what contemplative silence is. I can now die. And he died three days later. That is what I really meant. People should be able to perceive there is something peculiar in this person, not an oddity of behavior, but something inside another dimension. And that we can aim at, not in order to shine, but in order to be rooted in God and to allow God and us to be at one to whatever degree we can, because 
we cannot even wish to be uh, at once made into the burning bush of the desert. If we are put there and, and made a flame, with burn to cinders. It takes something different to become the burning bush who burns with divine light, uh, fire, and is not consumed. 